You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. You're listening to Feast Meets West, the show tracing the stories behind your favorite Asian foods. I'm your host, Linda Liu. We are broadcasting live from Heritage Radio Network, Alberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Every episode, we dig deep on an aspect of Asian cuisine or culture by having a conversation with the passionate people from the world of Asian food. Today, we're talking about one of my favorite big format meals, the Peking duck, as well as the Chinese banquet style of dining that is exemplified by the Peking duck. In Beijing, also formerly known as Peking, the Peking style roast duck is served at almost every celebratory occasion. When you're out at a birthday with your family or friends, closing deals with new business partners, or hosting foreign dignitaries from Nixon to Obama. The iconic dish became popular back in the Ming Dynasty, which was over 600 years ago. It was originally created as a dish served to the emperor at royal banquets. The first restaurant specializing in Peking duck is recorded to have been established in 1416. Peking duck is characterized by its thin, crisp skin and juicy, tender meat. Traditionally, the whole duck is carved tableside by chefs into thin slices. As a diner, you make your own mini duck burrito by picking up a parchment-thin mandarin pancake from the steamer basket, spreading some sweet bean sauce or hoisin sauce on top, then plopping on a few pieces of the succulent carved duck, some sliced scallion and cucumber. Then you roll it up, consume, and repeat. The dish is also recognized for the laborious preparation, which we'll go into detail later, but it involves pumping air into the duck to separate the skin from the fat, hanging it to dry before roasting it in a closed oven or hung over an open fire. Now, joining me in the studio this evening is Ed Schoenfeld, creator of the critically acclaimed restaurants Red Farm and Decoy. Both New York Magazine and GQ have recognized Decoy as the best Peking duck restaurant in New York City. Okay, a little bit more about our guest tonight. Ed has been on the leading edge of the Chinese food scene in New York for over five decades. Around 1970, Ed began setting up Chinese banquets as a hobby and in doing so, developed relationships with a new influx of top-notch Chinese chefs who had recently emigrated to the U.S., and they brought with them culinary skills and regional Chinese cuisines never before seen in the States. In 1972, he helped open Uncle Tai's Hunan Yuan, which immediately earned a four-star review from the New York Times and brought Sichuan cuisine to the mainstream. Ed went on to run the famed Shenli Palace and launched Shenli on the Upper West Side. And over the years, Ed has created dozens of restaurants as an owner, operator, and as a consultant. Okay, Ed, let's rewind to the start. 
how did you get into this business? Nice Jewish boy like you. Why Chinese food? Well, um, good evening. How good are evening. You? Nice to be here. Um, you know, I, as a young man, uh, loved eating. I have uh, an uncle who, when I was really, when I was in single digits, you know, when I was seven, eight, and nine years old, my uncle uh, had MS and he was stuck at home. And he loved inviting me to come over to his house and used to enjoy watching me eat. Wasn't Lucky you. It <laughs> wasn't <laughs> long after that that I started spending my Friday afternoons with my grandmother, whose name was Goldie, mm, and classic. who was the matriarch of our family and who raised 19 children and cooked for 25 people at each meal. Incredible. She cooked for 50 people a day. I don't know how she got all the food home to her kitchen. <laughs> but by the time I was uh, 10 or 11 years old, I would go to her house on Friday afternoons and help her cook. And I realized as a child of the 60s and, you know, kind of the, the hippie love generation there that I wanted to do my own thing. And when I looked deep inside myself, the thing that I knew that I really loved was cooking and eating and food. And I thought, gee, wouldn't it be great to have a career based upon that? Mm -hmm. And I started pursuing that as, as a teenager. And... Um, growing up in in, uh, kind in of New York in, in New York and Brooklyn okay. in kind of an intellectual but not very affluent family um, when we went out for exotic food it was Chinese food it wasn't to the local f fancy French restaurant there wasn't one of those I didn't come from the sort of family that would patronize le pavillon or so exotic to me meant um, you know Chinese American food, shrimp and lobster sauce and barbecued spare ribs, which are, by the way, pretty classical Chinese foods as well. They're not merely Americanized. And I started cooking as a teenager uh, and, and was a self-taught cook. But I decided to take some cooking classes. And one of the famous cooking teachers in New York City in, in the 60s and 70s was a, a very patrician Chinese woman who had grown up in Shanghai, who had gone to Vassar here, a family center here to college. Her husband was a politician and um, had become China's ambassador to Moscow. And she ran wow. the Chinese embassy in Moscow for years. Um, and we're talking during the 30s and 40s. Uh, she ended up in New York in the 50s when the communists took over and when her mm -hmm. husband lost uh, his job. And she really didn't know what to do with herself, and she decided to start teaching Chinese cooking. It was kind of an interesting choice because when you ran the embassy, you weren't the cook of the embassy. You of had course. a whole team of cooks. And Grace Chu, the woman who was my teacher, was kind of the doyen of Chinese cooking teachers in America. Uh, she's the one who set the example for the others who followed her. Turns out Grace wasn't a very good cook. She knew how food should be, and she had a very sophisticated knowledge and palate. Mm -hmm. But the tricks that a fine professional chef knew were not the same tricks that she knew. And I decided that I wanted to learn more than I, after a couple of years of classes from her, I, see. I wanted to learn about a higher level of cooking. And I, and I discovered that, you know, for convenience, we could talk about Chinese food, like by regions, but we could also talk about Chinese food as there being home cooking, there being restaurant cooking, and then banquet cooking. And in China, the tradition for the very best chefs was not to work in a restaurant, but to, to work for a patron. And as a result, the, the best chefs in China had traditionally worked for famous artists or wealthy people or bankers and, and for a very small elite group of people. And the history of China really, you know, in, in the last hundred years is, is largely about Mao Zedong, the communist revolution, and the fact that in on October 1st, 1949, the, the revolution ended when Mao won, mm -hmm. and the uh, losing party of Chiang Kai-shek, the Kuomintang political party, was exiled to the island of Formosa, which quickly became a new country and was called Taiwan. And many of the wealthy people in China in the late 40s and early 50s left China. And a, most yeah, of, a them of them grabbed their chefs. They, they, yeah. they did, and they, but they brought chefs with them to wherever they went. And in China, where there suddenly was a much more egalitarian world, um, 
cooking fancy food was frowned upon. And the great chefs of China were no longer, for a long time, able to practice their craft in the same way. Mm -hmm. And there was a diaspora of chefs. Luckily for me, um, a group of those chefs came to the United States in the late 1960s. We had a, a... an act that went back to the 1880s that prevented Chinese from emigrating to this country. Those, uh, that law effectively kept Chinese, professional Chinese chefs out of this United States and is largely the reason we didn't have much uh, fine Chinese cooking or regional right. ethnic Chinese cooking. In the late 60s, when that changed, a, a group of wealthy Chinese came here and a lot of those guys still had these great chefs who had left China 20 years before, and they set up shop in the United States, and a number of them set up shop in New York City, and in particular, along Broadway on the Upper West Side. And we suddenly mm-hmm. got our first round of Szechuan food in the United States and then Hunan food. And that coincided with my interest in this area. Yeah, and you were in the uh, right place, right time. I was, and I started setting up Chinese banquets as a way of accessing a higher level of cooking. And so during the late 60s and early 70s, I literally set up a banquet every week. And when I found a good chef, I would go back to him and sit down with him and often the proprietor of his restaurant and talk about, you know, what did he cook well? What, you know, what would he make for me? And I discovered a whole new world of really fine Chinese cooking. Yeah, could you uh, describe in detail also, like what goes into like setting up a Chinese banquet, or how did you go about? Well, creating you know, yours? what's important to understand is that uh, a Chinese banquet is a, is a formal aspect of of eating in China, and it's something that one would set up to celebrate a banquet, to celebrate a birthday, to set up a, a special occasion. And, it, you know, it's we've often, I, I think many of us have seen meals like this. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll go into a, a Chinese restaurant and you'll see a round table, typically of eight or ten people. And very often there's a lazy Susan on the table. Right. And, and usually a Chinese banquet is served one course at a time, very... You know, the, the typical first course is a, a dish of cold cuts, mm, Chinese cold, cold cuts, usually thinly sliced. Uh, and then uh, Peking duck, you know, the, the topic of, of today's, uh, you know, show, you know, is one of the typically eight to ten courses that serve during a meal like that. Um, because it's wrapped up in a pancake, very often... Peking duck is thought of as one of the major courses, but also one of the first courses. It's kind of like a fancy appetizer course. Mm -hmm. And um, so I started meeting different chefs and setting up dinner parties for 10 people. And I invited fellow culinary students, simply got in touch with them and said, you know, we're in the same cooking class. I'm setting up this dinner party. Would you like to come? And uh, that kind of steamrolled and became a regular thing. It wasn't exactly a business, but it was a way of me developing an education. It's like and the I, OG supper club. Well, you know, w- what happened was that I was able to develop relationships with four or five really s- superlative chefs. Uh, and, and these are chefs who trained in China prior to the re- revolution. Mm. And most of these chefs were you know, in the later part of their career. I mean, if they had left China in 49 or 50 and they were an accomplished chef then, mm-hmm. chances are were that they were at least 30 or 35 years old because it takes 15 or 20 years to develop the skill set one needs to to develop to become what the Chinese would call a daisifu or a, their, their phrase for a master yeah, chef. Yeah, a real master. And, Did- and this was now 20 years later. So these chefs were 50s and 60s yeah. in their age group. And... You know, quite excited to meet someone who was interested in what they did. And and so when I I started setting up banquets, eventually I got chefs who really wanted to strut their stuff and and show off for me. And I, not knowing at the time, but I I really got exposed to an incredibly high level of Chinese cooking, a a world-class level. And was was it a spectrum of uh, regional cuisines or were they specifically... uh, in Sichuan or Hunan cuisines? Well, you know, I, I, could, I could break it down to four or five chefs and, uh, that I, I learned from the most. And 
you know, the man who was my main teacher, who was a man named, we called him affectionately Uncle Lou. His family name was Lo, really, and his name was Lo Hoi Yen. Lo Hoi Yen was a very famous um, Szechuan banquet chef. And um, he had been the family chef to to a man who's generally recognized as the preeminent Chinese artist of the 20th century. Uh, if I were explaining this story to a group of educated Chinese of your parents' generation who had been, you know, versed in art and history and all, I would say, oh, I was Chang Dai-chan's family chef's student. And as soon as they heard the name Chang Dai-chan, that would be like me saying the word Picasso. Like it would have broad, wide recognition of someone who was, oh, great, great artist, and in this case, also a famous gourmet. And so my teacher, Uncle Lu, um, lived with Lo Hai Yen, uh, starting in around 1950, when, when, uh, when uh, uh, you know, chef, uh, painter Chang Dai Chen left. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, at first, they lived in Bangladesh, but quickly this painter moved to uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil. And uh, Uncle Lou moved there in the 1950s and spent almost 20 years in Brazil. And wealthy Chinese who had left China would travel around the world, and a number of them would make a pilgrimage to this Chinese scholar's house that uh, this chef had built in Sao Paulo, Brazil, I mean, that this painter had built, and where he had this chef working. And uh, eventually, Uncle Lou ended up in the States and started cooking dinner parties that I hired him to do. He was Mm -hmm. not really a a restaurant chef, though he worked in restaurants. He was more what we call a one-table chef, which means rather than cooking a banquet, let's say, for 200 people where there were 20 tables of 10 people each, he was... his, his especially was cooking for one table of 10 people. And he had a very, very artistic bent to his cooking. And to this day, I've met very few chefs who really had his skill level and his creativity. And he had a very high level of what I simply call delicious. When he cooked something, it was just great. He made a dish named after the painter called Tachian Chicken, which was uh, a spicy chicken on the bone braised with very high quality mushrooms. He made these amazing appetizers that were deep fried and looked like a flower. And I, you know, when I first ate them, they were different than anything I'd ever eaten. And it turned out they were deep fried chicken gizzards. And, you know, I have to tell you, I'm not a fan of offal. And to this day, uh, there aren't too many chicken gizzards I, I want to uh, chow down on. But the ones that Uncle Lou made were just transformed. They, they were amazing. So I was lucky enough to get an education that you really couldn't get in China at that time. Uh, chefs of that caliber weren't allowed to cook that kind of food in China. Mm-hmm. So uh, I kind of stumbled into this world and met a group of businessmen who were the restaurateurs who had hired these chefs, became friendly with one of them, a man named David Kay, and simply made a joke to him in the early 70s about becoming his assistant. And he took me literally. <laughs> nice. And uh, I went to work with him in 1972. And we worked together to help set up what was to become one of the first two Hunan Chinese restaurants in the world outside of China. And that restaurant actually opened in 1973 in January. Mm. and. Uh, Unbeknownst to me, this uh, my employer had other designs for me. He didn't want me to be his assistant. I was the fast-talking Jewish guy from Brooklyn who he thought he needed to deal with the American clientele. And uh, about a month in front before, of house. So a month before the restaurant opened, I showed up at work one day, and there was a tailor there. And I'm like, what's this dude doing here? <laughs> and he was there to measure me for a tuxedo of course and i had been designated the maitre d of this restaurant having never really worked in a restaurant before i'd been playing with food and i'd actually been writing a newspaper column for the brooklyn heights newspaper for two years so you were kind of going the journalist direction well that had been my thought at that point but you know i i wrote this column it was called gravy stains it was irreverent it was fun 
And it was really helpful to me because it made me understand that I didn't want to write about cooking and write about food, that I wanted to do it. And um, my tuxedo showed up a couple of weeks later. Uh, unbeknownst to me, it was made from blue polyester with chevrons in the uh, material. Oh, my and gosh. It had we a, need a photo of this. It had so a, 70s. It had a fake uh, kind of velvet lapel. I had a frilly blue and white uh, tuxedo shirt and a really tacky blue bow tie. And I had been a real kind of uh, uh, Brooks Brothers prep school kid in a suit and tie every day in my life. And once I got to 18 or 19, I made the transformation to looking like I was a member of the Grateful Dead. It was quite a radical transformation that my children today make jokes about. They have before and after pictures. Yeah, you, you have your phases. <laughs> so the restaurant opened, and I found myself as the maitre d'. I still looked like I was a member of the, member of the Grateful Dead, but I was wearing this, you know, blue polyester tuxedo. It was, it was quite the sight. Two weeks after the restaurant opened, we got four stars from the New York Times, and I found myself as the host of what was arguably the most influential Chinese restaurant in the country, almost overnight. Yeah, and that just kicked off your decades-long career. Right, so now, you know, that was 1973. It was 46 years ago. It was in January, and I'm in my 47th year. And I have been imagining and setting up restaurants, and, and I've done quite a few different kinds of restaurants, but the focus of my work... Uh, and clearly of enormous interest to me is Chinese cooking and food. And, um, it, you know, I'm such a lucky guy. It continues to be something that I'm incredibly passionate about and um, have been following that quest ever since. So, you know, I have a pretty good knowledge of mm-hmm. the history of the Chinese restaurant business in, in New York City over the last 45 to 50 years. Because it's something that's just been uh, a daily part of my life pretty much every day. And, you know, I can remember the night many years ago when I was driving through Queens and I had heard that someone had opened a couple of cool Chinese restaurants in Flushing. Flushing was an Italian neighborhood in those days. Uh-huh. And just, just as a goof, I was in my car driving in and out of the streets to see if I could find something. And I, yeah, I, there was no Yelp those days. And I saw this bank building right across the street from the municipal lot, and it had a big glass window, and it, it had a little, like, uh, emergency exit. And suddenly, as I was driving at night up this street, the, the emergency exit opened, and there was, a, you know, a, a light, and it was a Chinese character, and some people walked out. And I slammed on my brakes, and I walked over to the door. And by this time, I was uh, with the Shun Li restaurants here in the city. This was probably the late 70s, early okay. 80s. And I walked downstairs, and there is a subterranean 200-seat Chinese restaurant underneath a bank. And I couldn't believe my mind. It was, it was like, totally hidden. And I started walking around with my, my jaw dropped open and my eyes bugging out of my head. And suddenly, someone started calling my name, and it was like... 12 co-workers of mine from the Shunli Palace who were sitting there having dinner. And for me, that's how my awareness of Queen's Chinatown or Flushing Chinatown, because, I mean, I recently read that there are nine Chinatowns in the New York area. I don't know if I could name all of them, but I certainly could name four or five. Mm-hmm. But this was my first awareness that, you know, that there was big change afloat and that yeah. the Chinese community was developing a kind of affluence and that members of it were moving to Queens and to Long Island and, and that, uh, you know, things were changing. And, yeah. of course, now, I mean, you know, Flushing might be the epicenter of the Chinese food community in, in, in the New York area. And, you know, Manhattan Chinatown, while still there, doesn't seem to be quite as vibrant as, as you know, as it used to be. Right. You know, we were just talking about that particular subject in our last episode. But that's so amazing that you've had this uh, incredible journey and firsthand experiences of, you know, change and also what's yet to come. So um, we're going to take a really quick break. And uh, once we come back, we'll talk about um, Peking Duck and Decoy. Great.
Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation, ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best tasting cheese from Switzerland. Emmy is best known for importing more than 80% of Swiss Gruyere into the United States, but that's not to overshadow their other specialty cheeses, including Kottbalk cave-aged cheeses, Appenzeller, Tete de Moine, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Michael Harlan Turkel, and I'm the host of The Food Scene here on HRN. This show explores the intersection of food, art, and design by talking to people who are inspired by these ideas. The show features food photographers, food stylists, interior designers, and so much more. All the players that make the world so visually delicious. You can find The Food Scene wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back. You're listening to Feast Meets West. Um, so, Ed, do you remember the first time you had Peking duck? What was that food memory like? You know, that's not a great question for me because I don't think I remember the first time. I've had a lot of Peking ducks. But, you know, I, I remember loving Peking duck and thinking, you know, that it was, you know, a particularly delicious, iconic dish. And uh, thinking that it was kind of an underserved dish, you know, it was, you know, with Peking duck, you always had to order it in advance, and it was it's kind of a big deal. And mm-hmm. and um, you know, we opened our decoy restaurant maybe five years ago, and I really thought that there was this large, certainly in the New York market, th- this large population that, that would, really wanted it, right? Yeah, and and, and uh, you know that's myself true. Included. You know, and and there have been a few players in, in, you know, making it, but, you know, that most of them have just done kind of an okay job. I mean... Yeah. How do you, you do it justice? How do you guys do it? Well, you know, first of all, like anything else, you start with good ingredients. So we start with a really, really excellent duck. We, we have our ducks, uh, uh, they're fresh-killed poultry they come from a, a duck farm named the Jerkowitz duck farm that uh, was a Long Island duck farm that's now okay. in Pennsylvania um, you know it, there's just fundamental confusion but uh, we call the dish Peking duck but there the variety of duck that one makes Peking duck from is a variety called Pekin P-E-K-I-N mm-hmm. um, so getting a really good Pekin duck is, is the first thing um our chef at Decoy and Red Farm, Joe Eng, is Cantonese. He's mm-hmm. not from Beijing. Mm-hmm. And it's very clear to me that he views making Peking duck with the mind of a Cantonese chef, not the mind of a northern chef. And, you know, what, is it, what do I mean when yeah, I say that? Right? that. So mo- mo- when you make Peking duck, there are a few steps to the process. One step is um, blowing up the duck to separate the, uh, you, as you the put it, the, fat, the skin right? and the fat from the meat. And, you know, I want to correct you. I think it's an important correction to make mm-hmm. because you don't separate the skin and the fat from the meat. It's the skin with the fat separating right. that Exactly. With the, meat. the fat stays with the skin. Mm-hmm. It doesn't stay with the, you know... So when you blow it up, um, it permits the fat to render in a way. And that, that's an important thing to understand. When you make a Peking duck, you, the first thing you do is you sew up the openings. And you have to butcher the duck so that the head is still on and that there's no hole in the neck. Because when you blow it up, you don't want the air to escape. It's like a balloon. If you have a Duck hole, balloon. Okay. all the air Step is going to go out. You then 
stitch up the cavity. You've, you've, the duct is eviscerated, which means you've taken all the insides out. And you close up the cavity so no air can escape. Now, here's a very interesting point, and something that is a point of differentiation with us and the next person. You know, one sees all these ducks hanging in windows in, in uh, restaurants all over Chinatowns, all mm -hmm. over the world. The, the, it's kind of like an iconic image. Right. And, and, you know, the barbecue chef, that's a whole station in the in the uh, kitchen and, and that station by the way is that position in the kitchen is known as the Xiao, ga, Xiao Lo which stands for the soy sauce guy and it's an allusion to the fact that he also makes soy sauce duck and soy sauce chicken when you see a duck hanging in a window uh, most Americans think that's Peking duck but it's not it's Cantonese roast duck mm -hmm. and what a Cantonese chef does is that he marinates his ducks usually in a soy sauce based marinade with herbs and spices okay. and then afterwards roasts it. In Peking duck, normally you don't do that. You roast it plain with very little flavoring and after you blow it up, you sew it up, you blow it up, then you pour hot water over it or dip it in water and that causes the skin to, to, to um, tighten up and then you dry it, and it's that tightening of the skin and drying it that ultimately enables it to become crisp. Ah, and how long does that usually take? What's the well? Length it of only this takes process? ten or twenty seconds to put boiling water on the outside. You don't want to cook the duck; you want it to stay raw. But it takes half a day for the skin to dry, and traditionally, you want to do it in a cold place and in a in a windy place. Like you might do it in your walk-in box in front of a fan. We do something a little bit different that's very typical of a Cantonese chef. Mm. And that's a little bit of a hybrid, which is that before we sew up our ducks, we marinate them on the inside with flavor. And we, not so dissimilar from a Cantonese roast duck. So we, inside of our ducks, we put cinnamon and star anise and hoisin and mm -hmm. soy and a little sugar and scallion and ginger. Not on the outside, because that would mess with the skin and its final product, but on the inside. And what does that do? Well, it flavors the meat so that when you cook it, the meat ha has a lot more flavor than the average baking Yeah. Duck. And it also is putting salt inside, and it ends up brining the duck from the inside out. So the brining actually does what we call denaturing, or it breaks down the texture of the flesh, and it tenderizes it, and it makes it juicy. Yeah. And by As us, a diner, you want to eat the whole duck when you're having it at Well, what point. happens is you get slices of meat, and they're just remarkably tasty and juicy simultaneously, and they're more so than the next person, because the next person doesn't do that. And... Uh, so yeah, that's different. In, in Beijing, traditionally, you're just eating the crispy skin part, right? right? We then, you know, you know, you've mentioned a couple of times in our conversations leading up to this program how, you know, it's a whole big celebration of Peking duck where, you know, you have the skin rolled up in a pancake or maybe the skin and the meat, and then maybe you have other courses. And there are certainly, you know, the Guangzhou duck restaurant in, in Beijing, a lot of duck restaurants in Beijing, where they, they make a multi-course banquet out of every part of the duck. So one duck will be, course will be duck liver, another will be, you know, duck gizzards, another will be duck feet or duck tongues or sautéed shredded duck meat or diced, finely diced duck meat mixed with vegetables in a lettuce leaf and duck soup. In my lifetime, boy, I've almost never had a duck soup that I thought wasn't dishwater. Like, it's like they make a quick soup, you know, I, here I am from the French point of view, like taking a, a carcass and cooking it for three hours and re then reducing it and getting this intense broth as opposed to this quick kind of, let's take the bones and some water and some spices and make a 20-minute soup. We kind of rethought the whole process a little bit. So in our restaurant, when we serve a duck, um, we want to wrap it up in pancakes and... But we're not interested in making a multi-course meal out of it. We're more interested in serving dishes that we personally would like to eat that go along with Peking duck and having the duck as an individual course. 
So in a more modern vein, what do we what would we like to eat before we have mm-hmm. a little duck? Well, we might like to eat a little uni or we might like to eat a cold octopus salad or we might like to eat some wagyu beef pieces or something a little bit spicy. So we've thought about it from our point of view. Yeah, that's in, in that, that still that. sounds like a banquet, you know? It is a banquet, yeah. but it, it's it's a rethought banquet mm-hmm. and it's not a it's not the traditional banquet that you'd get if you went to Dai Dung in, uh, in, in, in... Back in, in Beijing or in something Beijing. like that. Yep. And um, interestingly, um, we've taken some of the aspects of that and engaged in what I call very smart, very good cooking. So we take our duck carcasses and we make broth from them, but we do that ahead of time. And we reduce it, and we get this very intense duck consomme. We actually have a little miso in it. And we find that by doing that, we can make a consomme that is fabulous, deep tasting. And what do we do with that? We don't serve it at the end of the meal. Right before we bring the duck to the table, we bring you a shot, just a jigger, of duck consomme to set your mouth up for that. And when we butcher our ducks... We don't butcher them in the dining room table side for one basic reason, which is that when we butcher them in the kitchen, we can take big slices of duck skin off the duck, turn them upside down on a piece of linen so that no moisture uh, degrades the crispiness of the skin, and we can actually physically cut away 100% of the fat that's stuck to the duck meat, so we to, to the duck skin. So we get skin that's 100% fat-free. Yeah, and we are really have, optimizing each we do, step of the way. Optimizing each set, uh, step of the way, and we actually have two chefs butchering one duck. One is just dealing with the skin, and the other one is dealing with the meat, and we do that so that we can do it very quickly, Mm-hmm. And we can get it to the customer so that it's very, very, very hot. We also do something that's kind of like Western-style cooking, which is that we let our ducks rest. So the, the way you'd make a turkey, uh, you know, you cook it for a lot of hours, and you don't cut it right away. Or a roast chicken, you take it out and you let it rest. And we right. say we want the juices to go back in. So we cook our ducks to order for our guests. We don't, we don't want them ever to cool off. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we take them out of their uh, customized oven, we actually hang them on a bar and we leave them there for 15 or 20 minutes and we let the juice go back into the meat so the meat's really, really succulent. Then, right as we're about to serve it, we take a blowtorch and we go over wow. the entire outside of the duck with a blowtorch and we get the skin super crispy, even crispier than it was when it came out of the oven. Now we very quickly butcher it and we have the skin and we have the meat. The chef who's cutting up the meat lays it on the plate and we do a very cool thing. We take some of this duck broth that we've reduced even further, more than the one we're bringing to the table. Okay. And when we put the meat down, we put a few drops of reduced duck broth on each piece of meat. Oh, you're giving away all the secrets. And then we put a little salt on each piece of meat, of sea salt. So we're taking a duck and we're impregnating it with flavor. We're brining it. Then we're, after we butcher it, we're letting it get another layer of flavor by putting a little bit of duck broth that the customer doesn't see a little extra salt, and then the crispy duck skin over that. So we're very, very, very careful about how we're cooking it and bringing it to the table. Mm -hmm. And the result is a duck that has incredibly crispy skin, but equally succulent meat, and has an extra flavor dimension. I guess if you were a purist and only wanted to taste duck, this might be a turnoff, but having a subtle flavor of anise and a subtle subtle flavor of miso or, or bean in there, really tastes great and it's it's what causes people to come back time and time again and say boy you know their duck is you know excellent i don't know if it's better i i you know i don't want to contrast us and say well we're a lot better than they are because we're not the only good cooks in the world but we're very good cooks and what we put out is it's smart cooking yeah and it's definitely a reflection of you know, uh, Chef Joe's background, his um, Cantonese training, and also it sounds like you're being really thoughtful 
with all the learnings you've had from the chefs that you've worked with over right. the generations. And, and, it's, and it's just, you know, it, it's food from people who are passionate about good cooking and understanding what that is and just taking some of the, the logic that you've learned in your time in, in, in the kitchen and applying it to this dish. Yeah. And, um, you know, in particular, Joe is a dim sum chef. So one of the great, one of the things that I've seen deteriorate in my lifetime in the kitchen are uh, poping or pancakes or Peking doilies that you wrap the duck up with. Mm-hmm. I mean, like the quality of like the thinness or like the, the texture. Exactly. Well, it used to be that, you know, every restaurant made their own pancakes by hand and you mm-hmm. make them by baking a dough and sandwiching two pieces together, but a little having a layer of sesame oil in between. And then you put them in a dry pan and you heat them up and steam gets generated and the, the steam causes the two layers to separate from each other. And that became burdensome to most Chinese restaurants. And when you got to the era where there were, you know, a lot of uh, noodle manufacturing companies, mm-hmm. they were looking to expand their business and they started making pancakes. And 98% of the restaurants use machine-made pancakes. And frankly, none of the machine-made pancakes are nearly as good as, as a really good homemade one. Right. And we not only have really good homemade ones, we have pancakes that are made by one of the best dim sum chefs on the planet who's a specialist in doughs. So he makes just pretty much perfect pancakes all the time and uh so we have these you know pancakes that are tender that they're translucent they're fresh and warm when you run out of them we bring you another basket of them Mm -hmm. you know it's everyone you know it's like getting a little basket of tortillas that are wrapped up you know freshly done and wrapped up in in a a piece of cloth so they retain their moisture and their warmth it's simply all of those details. Yeah, it, it all comes together. And um, the result is, you know, we have a, a small restaurant that's just full all the time. And that, interestingly enough, um, you know, we, we've had all this press on the major Chinese television network talking about how great our Peking duck is. So we have a restaurant that's full of Chinese customers all the time, which, you know, I'm obviously a white guy. And it's it's really exciting to see the appreciation we get from the Chinese yeah. community. You that know. is cool. And, and from you. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. So, okay, um, Ed, what's next for you? Well, um, we have a couple of new red farms in the works. Um, How for, many locations do you have now? Well, we in New York, we have three restaurants. We have uh, Red Farm, our original Red Farm on Hudson Street in West 10th. Uh, underneath it, uh, after a couple of years, we opened Decoy. Um, so we have two restaurants there, and then we're on the Upper West Side. And then uh, six months ago, we opened, licensed a red farm, and we have a fourth red farm now in uh, London, in the Covent Garden neighborhood. Um, no Peking duck there, by the way. But we do have a group of dishes in that restaurant that we designed just for the London market. So, Like uh, what? Well, we have these great... Uh, uh, bao buns that we make with a little mm-hmm. sugar-coated topping that we fill with the most fabulous, so it tastes kind of like roast Chinese char siu, roast mm-hmm, pork, mm-hmm. but it's actually pork belly, and it's actually something that we grill to order. And it's very succulent and juicy, and we put it, we slice it and put it in one of these buns, and we actually put a little salsa on it. So it's kind of modern, you know, fusion food, but very delicious. The buns that Joe makes are just great. And so we, we call them, you know, uh, pork belly sliders. All right. We also have um, uh, cheeseburger spring rolls, a little bit of the American mm-hmm. uh, vibe there, and th- those are great. And we actually just recently, we don't have the, the sliders in New York, but just a few weeks ago we uh, introduced the, the spring rolls to our American customers too. And, you know, I have a little addiction, I must admit. You know, it's hard for me not to right. to order one of those when I'm hungry. So, um, but but a lot of our food is, is, you know, seen through the eyes of our chef, who's clearly Cantonese, who clearly has a, a background in dim sum, and um, clearly has a penchant for delicious and for fun. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, Whimsical. We, Pardon me? Whimsical. We're definitely into whimsical stuff. You know, if you've been to Red Farm, you know, you'll see that we have dumplings that are 
what we call figurative dumplings, that they're shaped like things. And you know, we have all these different animals that Joe knows how to make. We have little tarts, duck tarts, but with foie gras, duck foie gras, mm-hmm. that are shaped to look like little swans. And yeah. they're very, del- you know. You get the we- kids and the adults going. Yeah, and, and, and you know, we we care about one thing more than anything else, which is that we care about the quality of our product mm-hmm. with the goal towards being things being really delicious. You know, we don't want something to look cool. We want it to taste delicious and then look cool. So, um, and then, you know, Joe has been a very, uh, uh, as Chinese chefs go, he he has been very observant individual and taken creative cues from some of the other culinary scenes that are taking place in the world and it's an exciting thing to see in the Chinese food world that's cool it sounds like he's always iterating and I can't wait to see what other new dishes you guys bring to Red Farm me too yeah. I'm, o- I'm always <laughs> encouraging Joe to do something new I, I almost every day say when are you going to do another dumpling or when yeah, you right? I think I'm a pest but he he kind of uh, reacts well to it and, and yeah. he's very you know I must say he is That's extremely proud of himself. That's what makes you guys good business partners. <laughs> well, Pushing I guess, each other. You know, we have, we're good business partners. And, you know, the other thing that makes us good business partners is, is how much passion we have for what we do. You know, we really, uh, we really care. You know, we, we care about uh, uh, giving our customers a, a, a really good, delicious, yummy time and treating them well and yeah. being friendly to them and making them feel happy at being in our restaurant. All right. That sounds like a perfect formula. Um, before we wrap up the show, we actually um, always ask a round of fun, quick fire questions. So get okay. ready. Um, um, they're, all, they're all food related. Um, so just please share what comes to mind first. Um, outside of Red Farm and Decoy, um, do you have a favorite restaurant right now? You know, I don't have a favorite restaurant, but... Is it uh, Casa Schoenfeld? <laughs> no, I cook every day, and I yeah. do love to eat my own food. But but when my wife and I go out, to be honest, uh, the place that we go most often is for lunch. And we go to John, the eponymous John George restaurant on uh, 59th and, and Central Park West. And uh, I always find it excellent there. Yeah. What's the best thing you ate recently? It can be out... At your restaurant, something you made at home? What's the best thing I ate recently? Oh, um, maybe the best thing I ate recently. Hard question. Uh, maybe some dumplings at Red Farm. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think some black truffle soup dumplings was the oh, best thing excellent. I had in my mouth yesterday. <laughs> it's 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 you know the beginning of March and it's the just about the last week of fresh black truffle season. Okay. So that I think is the the thing I like the most that I ate recently. Yeah, and seasonal too. That's cool. Um, I know you love to host dinner parties. So what's your what's one of your go to dishes? Um. Well, uh, the the thing that I made most recently that I really like that I go to is that I took home twenty Peking duck carcasses from my restaurant, <laughs> okay. and I made a duck stock from them, and from that I made my grandma Goldie's traditional Jewish mushroom barley soup oh, man. with really fine quality shiitake mushrooms what they call fuagu flower mushrooms oh like um uh the umami flavor is just like right and and i made i had a little um uh, party at my house for the newark museum it was a, a kind of a charity event that i donated and i served this soup there and i took a whole bunch of white truffles and threw them into the soup at the last minute and um your uh, set to impress. Well, you know, I did. I didn't tell anyone they were in there. I just <laughs> let people taste them, and I made quite a lot. I mean, I made enough for maybe seventy or eighty people, 
and I, I saved about 15 portions for the freezer. And I've been uh, feasting on that. And I just, I just used up the last portion the other day. And I actually had cooked some prime rib and I cooked what they call the spinalis, which is the cap of the prime rib, the, the thin muscle around the outside. And I had a little left over and I sliced it very thinly and I warmed it up by putting it in that mushroom soup. And that was a really fun meal. Oh, I like that meal. Wow. Uh, beautiful life, Ed. <laughs> you know, I, I, I love um, taking little bits and pieces of, of my cooking yeah. and recombining them and making new things from them. Yeah. And so that's something I do quite often these days. Um, okay, so last question is, if you didn't pursue your passion in food, what do you think you would be doing? Um, I think I might like to be a city planner. Or I really enjoy... Mayor uh, of New York. Uh, not mayor, <laughs> but, you know, I live in an old historic house that we've had a lot of fun doing over and uh, working with a, a great interior decorator uh, fixing up. And that whole process, the di when creating new restaurants, working with the interior designer mm -hmm. and developing interiors, yeah, a lot of fun. I enjoy that quite a bit. Oh, well, um, thanks for all the answers and for sharing your stories with us, Ed. Oh, it's so nice to be here. I'm sorry. Uh, sorry I couldn't share more, but maybe next time. Maybe next time. All right. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Ed. That wraps up our show. And thank you, dear listeners, for tuning in. Have you left us a podcast review? If you haven't, we would truly appreciate you taking a few seconds right now to do so, wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be back in a couple weeks. That's March 27th with another awesome conversation from the world of Asian food. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage, and thanks for listening.